We've a trio of guests tonight who are going to explore this revival of Richard Jones's production of Rodolinda. He seems a little mad, was one contemporary's judgment of Handel, and do you wonder, in just one year, he wrote three operatic masterpieces, Tamilano and Giulio Cesare, and Rodolinda, composed first for the first Royal Academy of Music, which had been founded in 1719 by a group of aristocrats who wanted a ready supply of what they'd had on the grand tour of Europe, of Europe Italian opera. Rodolinda was given its first performance on the 13th of February 1725 at the King's Theatre in the Haymarket, and it was produced with the same singers as Tamilano. There were 14 performances, and it was repeated on the 18th of December 1725, and again six years later in May 1731. And there were a further 16 performances in all, uh, revivals that included changes made by Handel, indicating that clearly this was a hugely popular work. So we must assume it appealed both to the aristocracy, who in a sense had paid for it in part, uh, and the ordinary paying public. But if its pleasing airs were enjoyed, what really excited the town was the diva who took the title role. This was Francesca Cuzzoni, and her costume inspired all sorts of extraordinary reports. Horace Walpole, one of the great gossips of the 18th century, reported that on Cuzzoni appearing in a brown silk gown, trimmed with silver, with all the vulgarity and indecorum of which all old ladies were much scandalised. However, the young adopted it as a fashion so universally that it seemed a national uniform for youth and beauty. I wonder how many of you will be appearing in that outfit, or indeed Rebecca and Evans' outfit, uh, in the office tomorrow. The libretto is by Handel's regular collaborator at this stage of his career, Nicola Francesco Heim, and was based on an earlier libretto by Antonio Salvi that had already been set as an opera by Giacomo Antonio Perti in 1710. Salvi's libretto originated with Pierre Cornet's play uh, based on the history of the King of the Lombards in the 7th century. So this isn't the classical world of Greece or Rome. This is a more modern chunk of history, uh, in a way. And were I to try and untangle Heim's plot, I suspect we'd be here until this time tomorrow evening. Suffice it to say that Rodolinda is the virtuous wife of Betarido, King of Lombardy, whose throne has been stolen by the wicked Grimoaldo. Grimoaldo also intends to steal Rodolinda when Bertorido pretends to be dead, despite the fact that this usurper has promised he will marry the other woman in the plot, Edwiga. With the help of Eunolfo, that's Bertorido's friend and counsellor, and despite the villainy of Garibaldo, Grimoaldi's sidekick, all's well but ends well after three acts, and a torrent of da capo operas and arias and some very nasty moments. David Webb, a Harvard artist with the English National Opera who's covering the role of Grimo Aldo, and Christopher Hopkins, who will be conducting Iolanthe later in this current season at the English National Opera, um, will be performing music from Rodolinda in a while and talking about the opera. And we're also joined by Dr. Berta Jonkus, who is Senior Lecturer in Music at Goldsmiths in the University of London, and a regular guest when Handel is on the bill at these pre-performance talks here at English National Opera. So please, will you welcome Berta Jonkus. Hi, 
Hello. And while we're talking uh, all the way through, you might notice these are stills from the production that you're going to see. So you're getting a little visual excitement of what it is. Better, 1724 was really an annus mirabilis for Handel. Um, three uh, obvious masterpieces. Do you see links between Tamilano, Giuliano Cesare and Rodolinda? Uh, I certainly do. I mean, it, of course, you've got the space of time. In fact, there's no other uh, opera composer who ever produced three masterpieces within a year the way Handel did. But what's also very fascinating to me is the way he carefully balanced his three masterpieces between the three stars. So he dedicated each one to each of the stars he was working with. So um, Giulio Cesare was dedicated to Senesino. Who was a castrato. Who was a castrato. And interestingly... Um, the, t the main topic there is sex um, and sexual power. Then uh, for Tamerlano, that was uh, dedicated to Borossini, the great tenor, and that's all about fatherly devotion. And then you have Rodolinda at the end of this kind of triptych, and that's and, and what Rodolinda really embodies is the true virtuous wife. She is, and I actually see this as a really feminist opera. The beginnings of the story uh, are with Corneille, the French uh, playwright, a tragedian who very much observed neoclassical rules, indeed rewrote some of the neoclassicals. Do you find anything neoclassical in the, 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 the opera that we are about to watch? Vestigially, um, because the, when the librettist uh, changed it, it was actually changed back around 1710, mm. uh, well before um, put to picked up this libretto, but, uh, and, and Haim helped him do it. But it, it, there is a, t a sense of unity of time, manner, and place. That, that, that one definitely has, and I think this production does a wonderful job actually capturing that. Um, what do Handel and his librettist, Haim, change about Salvi's libretto based upon the play? What kind of changes do they make? Well, the main changes that they make is balancing out the number of opera arias to make sure that um, Rodolinda gets the most numbers and the most spectacular numbers, followed then by, six, so she gets eight, and then there's six to the two leading men. So very carefully balanced, and that, that's quite a radical change from uh, the, the, the original Italian libretto. Do they trim back the recitatives too? That's the other thing, of course. And then, and you know, it's just so clever the way the whole thing was put together because Handel is—he is just such a man of the theatre, and he worked very closely with Haim. I mean, Andrew Jones, who did the critical edition, has shown evidence that it was Handel who was making a lot of the decisions around the changes to the libretto. So half of the recitatives fall on the editing floor, as it were, because he knew that you know people just wanted to get to the, the great music. But there's a puzzle there because, of course, it's the recitatives where we expect the action, and then everything stops, um, and, and the characters reflect on their emotions, feelings, and reactions. So, so if you cut too much recitative, somehow the action is perhaps overweighed by contemplation. Funnily enough, that would be true, except that the arias themselves. Yes, they're static, they're de capo, but there is a growth within the arias. So that, in fact, what you 
find is that the music is bringing forward the, the drama because this is an incredibly interiorized um, characterization of each of the fictional figures. And this is, again, what makes this... This is a beautiful opera, but it's also a very profound opera and very unlike many 18th century masterpieces, Handel's included. There is this psychological sense so that you get inside the head of the character, and that then just draws you in. I've talked a little bit about the soprano who took the title role yes. of Rodolini Cazzoni. Well, who were the other singers in the first production? What do we know about them? So the other two stars um, were the Castrato Sandesino, who was actually uh, probably the, the best-known castrato of of his day when he was hired. And when they set up this opera company, it was the first regular opera company in London that um, Handel created, uh, was, was part of, I should say, and it was run by the directors. The directors said, Senesino's our man, we want him. And if I'm just going to tell a little story around that, because I think it's quite funny. So Handel was then tasked with going to Dresden to get Senesino to come to London. But, but Senesino was in a contract in Dresden, and he couldn't break his contract. So what happened is he then instigated, Senesino is, was a fight during a rehearsal, <laughs> and refused to sing the arias, and in fact tore up the manuscript, called the composer all kinds of names, and threw it on the floor. And I'm quite sure that he did that to engineer getting fired, which is exactly what happened, which then allowed him to come to London. And I'm sure that he colluded with, with Handel to, to get out of his contract. That sounds a very yeah. modern tale. I can think of <laughs> other divas who perhaps, you know, throw such wobbles, uh, yes. I think. Um, it was an engineered wobble, however. Very, very <laughs> clever, yeah. <laughs> you, you've said that you read the opera um, yeah. as a feminist yeah. or strongly uh, uh, in favour of women. Um, uh, I wonder just how, because in a way, Rodolinda is indeed the faithful wife. And this figure yeah. dominates so much neoclassical thought in the 18th century. You only have to go to an English church and look at all those grieving widows by urns looking down on the remains of their husbands in the, in, in, in the crypt uh, or below. Um, where do you see the kind of proactive element in Rodolinda? Well, she is the linchpin, really, of the action. Everything turns around her. The, in comparison to her, actually, men are both quite weak. So it's her steadfastness uh, and, and in the way she challenges, actually. She calls the bluff of the man who is opposing her. So what's happened in the action is that her husband, she believes her husband to be dead, and she believes the brother, who is now courting her and declaring love for her, she thinks that he plotted the murder of her husband. So she absolutely despises him. And yet, there's a certain, and I won't give away, I know spoiler alerts here, but uh, I won't give the game away, but there's certain situations in which she must pretend to be in love with him. And she does that deception so well. And that, that, and then she suddenly turns the tables because she understands that the man she's dealing with is nothing but a coward and he will not, when challenged, actually um, do the deed that he's threatened to do. And she basically calls his bluff. And, you know, it, that she sets the, uh, sets the price very high. It's her own son's life that she actually takes a gamble on. So it's, you know, it's a really, really um, 
climactic moment and at the same time just shows her audacity, her cleverness, and her ability to dissemble in order to get what she wants. So that's what I mean. This is a very multi-layered character and you hear that also in the music. And, and, th and therefore, by the same token, a woman who discovers in the course of this extraordinary story um, where power lies and how to use power to survive. So. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's, in a sense, what makes her a little bit different from the other heroines of her era because she is so proactive and because she actually learns as she goes along and, in, and, grows, in, and grows into being an even bigger kind of character than she is. She's already the steadfast wife lamenting the loss of her husband, but she kind of takes ownership of the situation and ends up calling the shots, as it were. Yeah. Um, are most of the, the numbers uh, straightforward arias, or do we expect to hear duets, indeed trios? Yes, there's all. This is a, it's a lovely treasure box full of all kinds of um, for different forms and arias. Um, it starts off actually not with a da capo aria, but with a very simple cavatina, which is an absolutely striking opening. It's almost like you're you're pulled immediately into this very profound state of mourning in which she finds herself thinking her husband is dead, and and then from there we're immediately uh, it's exposed the, the level of, of moral decrepitude that she's been thrust into with um, the man who's pursuing her, who is her brother-in-law and his henchmen and that's all done with these you know, fabulous, uh, fabulously ornate arias but then we get these ravishing duets ravishing duets and again, the, and the, their pacing is so perfect because they bring to a close then the, the, the kind of build up and it's like a, a sighing out you know the dramatic syntax is just so sophisticated as well one, one critic has written that at the start of an aria the person seeing it is in one state and by the time they finish they're in quite another state there is therefore an extraordinary kind of psychological acuity presumably at work not only in terms of characterization but in terms of the music too how does that work yeah, it works through the score, and it works, prim I would say, one of the pr key elements, ev as always, really, f with Handel, is the way he uses instruments. So that the instruments actually become another voice, and they take on, as it were, a kind of equal eloquence in deepening the situation so that you do learn more about the psychological state of the character through listening to the obligato line or listening to what the, 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 the throbbing of the bass and what that's doing or the gently lapping of the Siciliano. He uses also dances like Siciliano too to striking effect to create certain atmospheres as well against which then the melody develops and the motifs just kind of unfold but they're always so superbly linked as well. The, the, the world musically you're describing and the world dramatically suggests that Handel, in a curious way, is reinventing Italian opera in these three operas in this miraculous year. You know, he's taking a given form mm. that his audience will know and he's saying, now let's see what you can do with it. Yes, very much so. But we also can't forget that he's writing to these very specific voices. So if we are, let's say, thinking about um, Senesino, what Senesino was famous for was actually recitative arioso and soliloquizing over these hushed strings, for instance, soliloquizing, um, very freely declaiming his feelings before launching into an aria. So lo and behold, what do you get for his very first number is this, you know, 
ravishing um, uh, recitative arias leading into Dove Sai. And it's, you know, it's, it's just superb. But the, again, you can also imagine that audiences of the day were by no means like audience, the, of that day were no, no means like the audience today. They would have just been going wild after the, the first aria and giving standing ovations, I'm quite sure. Yeah. And indeed, we know from Dr. Burney, the other gossip yes. of the 18th century, that audiences did react extraordinarily strongly. Extraordinary. One thing, those audiences would perhaps have seen in the way that the 18th century often did a moral fable in this yes. opera. And they'd have probably seen it as, you know, a demonstration of how tyranny um, and power were linked uh, and would have congratulated themselves on how these things didn't happen in Britain where, you know, we'd had a sensible revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Is, that, is that fair? I think you could make that reading, but and I, just to come back to the feminist point, I think what the one one uh, reason they would pat themselves on the back is because women were more emancipated actually in um, in England compared to other other countries in Europe, in other nation states in Europe. So that this, this story really is about the impact of an enlightened woman. She understands what virtue is, she understands what morality is, and she does not give an inch. And people just have to fall into line. Um, she creates a situation, she raises the tone and refuses to give in to male authority, which is both inappropriate and full of lust, both for power and for sex. And hey, what better story uh, can we actually bring on stage today? Uh, it's just so incredibly timely. I, I loved uh, going to it because I was reminded that, yes, these values still are were, 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 were applauded back then and are applauded today. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Berta, thank you very much. You'd stay with us, okay. but thank you very much. Thank you. We're joined now, ladies and gentlemen, by David Webb, a Harwood artist, with English National Opera, who's covering the role of the villain Grimo Aldo, and by Christopher Hopkins, who, as I said, uh, will be conducting Ilanthi uh, in the rest of the season. Would you please welcome Christopher Hopkins and David Webb? David, as you will remember, one of the unfair things is that you have to talk for your supper before you're allowed to sing for it, uh, pre-performance talks. Um, so let's begin. Who do you think Grimo Aldo is? Um, who do I think he is? Uh, Grimo Aldo is a... I mean, he's, uh, he's a really interesting character. His kind of degeneration of kind of uh, where he is at the start of the opera to the end of the opera is amazing to play and to, to, you know, to have an experience of doing that as a tenor. You're often playing... Uh, Princes, or well, I often play princes and certain things, and it's a bit, oh, lovely, you know, in love. Whereas this is like a complete, you know, this guy goes crazy, and it's amazing to actually have an opportunity to play that sort of character because it doesn't happen that often as a talent. What do you think he hopes to gain by forcing himself on Rodolinda? Well, the big thing that what Richard, I know, and, um, and Donna, who is the revival director, focused on with Grimwaldo was that. It was the passion that he had. He was really kind of very jealous of Bertorido and, and what Bertorido had. So there's a, there's a line that he says, oh, I'm so jealous, I want his, his wife and his power. And that's a really strong kind of in, instinct of where he, he's at kind of as a character. He, he knows he can never be respected, as respected as Bertorido was because he's usurped the throne and it's, it wasn't his by right. You know, he came and, and took it. And I think that's kind of where he is. And there's the very contemporary link 
that Berta was talking about, between sex and power. Massively, yeah. I mean, he, the way he talks about women, uh, the way he talks about Edwige and, and Rodolinda, and the way he is, especially in, in, in this production as well, it's, um, you can, there's a bit where later on, in, I think it's in the middle of Bertorito's, one of his arias on the other side of the stage, they're doing a, a tango which is really hard. Dancing as a, as a whole is really hard. I mean, you don't have to sing and dance, but it was really hard to learn. Uh, and, um, and all throughout it, you know, there's this kind of chemistry between them. And even though Rodolinda's playing it, you can definitely see that he's, you know, he's thinking, you know, about later in the evening in, in the middle of this dance. So, yeah. Can, can one really believe that Grimaldo hmm. almost becomes Mr. Nice Guy after his last <laughs> big aria? I don't know. I mean, I personally, when, when we had our studio run yesterday, and I, I personally don't think anyone who can go through that, I just, if it's a bit like cosy at the end, you know, it's a bit like, oh, we're friends again. And I just don't think that's right. I, I don't think you can. And, you know, again, with that, no spoilers or anything, but, you know, that's certainly not what I think Richard thought about it, his kind of ending either. What are the, the dramatic challenges that face the senior actor <clears throat> with the role? Well, in this production, there are lots of... Uh, in, it's a Richard Jones production, which means it's the most detailed and wonderful production, as you can see. Well, you can see there. Very in, into it. There's lots of things, like, you'll, you'll notice, you'll, you'll think, oh, that's incredible, that happened on the music, or the, that created that, and that's... Richard is amazing, as with, we were saying earlier, as with all good directors, they only have two sources, and they are the text and the music, and those are the ones that really use it. So you'll notice there'll be something in... in a, the flick of a switch will be on the start of a of an aria, a button into a scene, out of a scene, and that's kind of what Richard does. You know, people will be facing the same way that their feet are. It's certain kind of precision things, and when you're covering that and you only get 12 sessions, I think we worked out it was, 12 sessions, which is, you know, not much time, when the, the whole cast have had four weeks to rehearse and you only have 12 sessions, it's quite, you know, quite hard uh, and a lot of concentration. So I would say that just making sure... It's hard because, especially as a character, you want to give the best performance, but... You're also in the back of your mind going, and then I have to do this on that bit, and then I see it, I'll see it on this bit, and then I'll do that bit on this bit, and my foot has to be here, and, you know, it's really hard, you know. Um, and you're supposed to be singing, too. Yes, yeah, singing as well. There's, a, there's an aria later on, which is like, that, you know, for me, uh, uh, Juan makes it sound easy, but it's, uh, he, he is going, it's this third aria, um, I'm suspicious, and it, it's incredible coloratura, and... The ornaments that he does really, again, da capo, fantastic to use the ornaments of what you're doing on stage and the, the physical kind of wh where you're at. And, uh, you know, during the middle of that scene, you've got Gary Baldo like running around like a nutter doing all this crazy stuff. And you're trying to sing really hard music whilst he's thrusting things at you and you're trying to beat someone up. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And we're very lucky to do this for, for a job. So I shouldn't be like complaining at all. But, but is there something. Uh, particular about singing Handel. I mean, uh, perhaps not all singers would choose it. You clearly have. But is there something distinctive about the Handel soloist? Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, it's a bit, I guess in some ways, Chris might be able to help me with this one. But I mean, I think it's a bit like, you know, Handel is a great marker of where you're at, I think. And you should be able to sing it. And it's, just, it's very stylized. And I think, again, uh, we were speaking about this earlier, there are certain... Uh, schools of thought that would say, oh, you've got to sing it this way, you've got to do it this way. And I disagree with those. I think you should sing with your, real, with your full voice, and there are effects that you can do, but you, I basically think that they went through a time where it all got a bit vegetarian in the singing. 
uh, and and a bit kind of weedy. That's a wonderful word. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I would take it away. I don't mean I don't mean. I'm sorry if there's any vegetarians here. So I apologise. <laughs> but there's just this lack of kind of any heart, and it all became very cerebral and like, oh, I think this happened. But actually, what's more, what's more important is what happens on the stage and where that comes from. There, person. That's what I think. Personally, um, before we go any further, um, um, what are you going to sing for us now? I'm going to sing his final outburst uh, and his aria, which is um, I forgot what how's it go. What's it called? Uh, Shepherd, I, I can only ever think of it in Italian, which is really annoying because obviously this is English National Opera, so you don't want me to sing that. Um, but it's shepherds uh, leaving their flocks in safekeeping, and just before that, he has a, a, a accompanied recit uh, where he kind of finally loses it properly this time. Yeah. Great, thank you. I'm torn by violent emotions Which cause me anguish and terror They are jealousy, anger and love And from the depths of my being it is remorse that plagues me Like a fury from hell It dogs my footsteps And howls at me You're a coward, a liar And a usurper, traitor And a tyrant Shade of a beach on a lawn, 
David, Christopher, thank you both very much indeed. Um, Christopher, before we talk about, about uh, Ronaldo, uh, Rodolinda, rather, Ronaldo, there's a Freudian slip. Can I talk a bit about the being a member of the music staff here at English National Opera? What, yeah. what are the kind of range of responsibilities the group of you who are part of the music staff have? What do you do? Um, well, it's loads of stuff, really, uh, which is great for somebody like me that gets bored quite easily. Um, it ranges from everything, from... Um, playing for auditions, from coaching singers, diction coaching. Um, I'd say that probably the main body of work is playing for productions, um, for production calls, which includes uh, coaching kind of tied up within that. Um, acting as assistant conductor, uh, occasionally conducting shows ourselves. So I'm doing a couple of Islanties next year. Um, 
I've acted as chorus master before when our chorus master conducted a show, and uh, I mean, so it's lo it's loads of different things, and and also increasingly, which is exciting, more um, outreach work with with Bayliss, which is which is great. And so we're really stuck in. Can, so I, kind can of I jump in? Yeah, I do. It's also for me as a singer, it's amazing when you've got uh, someone whose ears you trust very much. So when when we we're in rehearsals and we'll be there you know, obviously working very hard in rehearsals and you're trying to remember the blocking and you've got someone whose ears you trust who'll be able to say, David, that wasn't quite right here, David. And then when you go into the theatre as well, so when you've got someone that you know that well who can just say to you little things, it's absolutely fantastic. So they are like the vital blood force of, of ENO. So people like Chris rock, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really generous of David. I mean, the main <laughs> thing is that is for somebody... I'm fascinated by the, by the voice and by what these guys do. And to see every aspect of that is is the most exciting thing and to kind of be able to be involved or try and push myself to be involved in areas you know uh, from first opening the score to singing on the first night and do you get to choose what you would like to work on no <laughs> <laughs> no within reason i mean i think so there are five of us um and valeria who's a, a trainee repetitor um and martin our boss Martin Fitzpatrick head of music um he kind of doles out the work and I think he has a he has a and we all kind of know what each other's strengths and weaknesses are mm. so there is an element of kind of looking at the season as a whole and saying who suits this best mm. but I mean part of it's um planned and part of it's how the schedule works out so let's turn to Rodolinda what kind of resources does Handel ask for in the pit for this opera so it's primarily strings based um, and then uh, and then we have a flute two recorders two oboes bassoon um, that kind of is the body of the orchestra and I play the harpsichord which kind of acts within that body which includes the strings and the wind players and then to the sides there's the continuo players which is a fantastic uh, theorbo player uh, Eligio uh, Nicholas my colleague um, who, who plays the harpsichord and um, and David uh, playing the continuo cello. And they act, the three of them act as a kind of group. Um, so they play all the recitatives uh, and decide between them who's going to play which bit of recitative. So sometimes it'll just be the theorboist, sometimes it'll be harpsichord and, and so on. Um, and they also then play some of the B sections of the arias. And so it's all kind of, from my perspective as a harpsichord player in this, in the pit, it, there, there's a kind of freedom to deciding who's going to play what bits at particular times. Um, and then there's, and then there's you, the score Do you itself. have to make up your mind and then yeah. that becomes part of uh, a round of performances? Or is there an element in which you can change your mind? You can talk to each other and say, why don't we try something else tonight? Yeah, uh, probably, not, probably not on the night. We generally, we try and rehearse beforehand. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, no, we, but I mean, there's a freedom from the first stage in orchestra rehearsal as to saying who's going to play what. And I mean, obviously, it, it's all within Christian's kind of idea of what he wants. So often when we get to stage rehearsals, he'll look at one of us and say, you stop playing or start playing or, you know, depending on how he feels, whether he feels like he needs more harpsichord sound or less or so on. But there is flexibility. And sometimes you'll hear in areas that we, we start and then kind of drop out for the 
B section or for the repeat of the A section, just kind of try and change the colour a little bit. We, we, you mentioned the Theorbo as mm. part of the Continuo group. I mean, we've got used to seeing this giraffe uh, lurking in the pit, but it's still a curious instrument. I mean, for those who perhaps aren't particularly familiar with it, just see this neck sitting uh, on the right side. Yeah. Just tell you a bit about the Theorbo. What, what are its qualities? What does it do? Oh, well, it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. And I, I, I mean, I... Uh, I'm no expert on the Theorbo, but um, he can conjure all sorts of colours. I mean, he, it's kind of, for the, for the layman like me, it's kind of like a guitar, um, which he can strum sometimes. It can be quite um, uh, military at times, also incredibly delicate at times, and, and he can, in numbers, um, so, say, for example, Bertorido's, Aria in Act Two, which is just the most beautiful string line, and um, we don't want to be faffing around with harpsichord, kind of plinking around. So it's just the oboe and strings, and it, he has it, because he has this delicacy with his right hand. He, he um, there's all sorts of different situations it can he can suit himself into. Do you know what I mean? Um, do, do you think that with these resources in the pit that Handel creates a very particular world of sound for this opera? Yeah, I mean, he's very conscious about when he employs the wind instruments, for example. So it feels like a big shock when you hear the recorders for the first time, uh, or if you hear, when you hear the bassoon solo for the first time, uh, or even the violas playing on their own for the first time, because he's been very careful about how he's pacing it in terms of the progression of palette, of the, of the actual sound of the orchestra. Um, he, it's really incredibly thought out, which means that with these what relatively small forces, I mean, this orchestra plays Aida the night before and then comes and plays this, and there's, um, what, a third as many players? I don't know, half as many players at least. Yeah. But, he, but within that, he has this huge range of colour. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's exciting. There is then also, there is a freedom on our part of actually exploring what, what we can do to kind of not enhance, uh, that would be a disservice to handle, but to kind of add our own kind of colour onto that colour. And, and, I mean, is this all historically informed? I mean, is this a performance that grows out of the excitement, as does Richard Jones' production, of Mm. the piece now? Um, Or uh, uh, are you carefully in the pit thinking what would have been appropriate in the early 18th century? Uh, How do we do it like that? I mean, within reason, yeah. Um, Obviously, Christian's idea, Christian is the kind of genius behind sorting the historically... Um, informed aspect out and in just in creating the whole colour he has such a clear sense of the kind of sound that he wants and what he thinks is acceptable and isn't and and so within that we're kind of playing around but he's kind of the ultimate arbiter of, of, of taste in that respect um, but yeah I mean it, it, it's roughly the same sized orchestra it's slightly bigger in the strings um, but we're in a much bigger space um, and we all kind of have a sense of historical informants. I don't know, I mean, the whole historically informed performance movement has changed so much in the last 40, 50 years or whatever. So, um, and, and in a nice way that I think there is, um, there is a sense that we are careful about what we're doing 
so, that, so as not to be doing a disservice to the composer, but also that within that there is a kind of freedom to explore new things and try different things. But, but you were nodding vigorously then. <laughs> is this is true, that you think the idea of the historically informed performance has changed? It fantastically changed, actually. I mean, in, let's say it was, it was wonderful to begin with, but I think its response to um, understanding the history we have a much greater historical imagination than we had before. And now we have also the bravura to use that imagination mm. as, I say we, I mean, I'm not one of the performers, but it's they. Um, but I hear the, I hear performers having such great courage in experimenting. And that's so important because it's exactly what people were doing yeah. uh, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing is that this is a huge house. Yeah. One of the largest opera houses in Europe, in a way, if we count the number of seats. Um, this opera was written for a relatively small house. Mm -hmm. um, how do you kind of adapt it to fit and work in a house built at the beginning of the 20th century uh, for an opera that was written in the early 18th century? Um, well, I mean, for a start, the production is big. <laughs> Uh, every time I look up from the pit, I feel like there's a whole different set. It's incredible. Um, uh, so uh, visually, it's very dramatic and big, and it fits the house perfectly. Um, and I mean, I don't, I don't know that we make many concessions for the size of the house, actually, because, uh, uh, like David was saying earlier, we're, uh, it's, the focus should be on singing well and singing well within yourself. Um, and actually, it's a big house, but... It's a beautifully constructed house, mm -hmm. and it works. Mm -hmm. You can do all sorts of things in it. You don't have to mm -hmm. sing to fill the house. You know, it's not like the Met or whatever. It's, mm -hmm. it, it, you can actually, and actually, the best seats, acoustically often, I find, are right at the back of the balcony, mm -hmm. just here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, there, there is a sense of... I mean, actually, I'd say more time is spent by me saying to people, don't, don't sing into what you see, than is spent trying to do anything to adjust for the size of the house. I also think that uh, Richard's been very clever with the set, and it's it's it's, yeah. it's forwards. But there's a bit later on that's not so forwards, but but you know he's he's made it. It's very supportive, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. He's, he's thought about he's thought about that himself as well. There was one Handel production where I think it was Handel, maybe it wasn't Handel, where the the orchestra um, were were on a kind of raised platform. In Magic flute, yeah. Um, was that a, did that an experiment that, that didn't wasn't deemed to have worked? That was part of Simon McBurney's conception for the production. <laughs> this was Magic Flute last year. Mm. Uh, which and was one other there were, earlier, there was an eighteenth century opera. Was that? I don't. Um, right. Possibly. I mean, it, it, the pit is built up from time to time. Mm. It was built up in Carousel, actually, as well. Mm. Um, I think it costs thousands and thousands of pounds to build right. up. But, I mean, it's appropriate for some things and, and not for others. But, I mean, it was part of, in Magic Flute, it was part of the conception of the production was that mm. the orchestra was, was kind of there all the time. Mm. Um, and you would have seen the orchestra in Mozart's time as well, I suppose. So, mm. um, I, it's, kind of, it's fun to see the orchestra. I mean, actually, one of the things that I feel is that the orchestra would be lovely if they were out of the pit much more often on a concert stage, um, aside from being built up in the pit itself. Yeah. Thank you very much Thank you. indeed, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached, I'm afraid, the end of our short allotted time. Some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for listening with such care and attention. I hope that you'll have a, a wonderful evening in the house. Uh, lucky you sitting in the circle. Um, and can I also thank on your behalf our three guests who've given up the early part of the evening to come and talk to us. Thank you all very much. <laughs>